I am Citizen 44. What's happening, baby? Oh, not much. I've just, uh, it's weird. I went from absolute crammed gigs to complete nothing for the last week. 
the first few days are awesome, and then you start getting that sort of shaky feeling of like, am I not supposed to do something? How long was the tour? It was two months. Where were you? It started off in Alaska, and then it went all the way through, and I saw you, ended up in Orlando in America, and then straight to Ireland for two weeks, straight to Denmark for two weeks. That's a pretty big tour, man. Yeah, it was great. It sort of came together weird, but once it was going, then I was like, oh, good Jesus. What was the weird part? Well, it's really over the years, we've stopped touring that insanely, you know what I mean? It just hasn't worked out that way in a while now. But this was going back mindset to the early days where you just get yourself in that zone and it's just gig, gig, gig. Um, it just felt strange to be gone so long doing it. It was invigorating, you know, that sort of way. Yeah. What do you use to record? If you were here watching what I'm doing, you would probably have already hung up the phone. <laughs> you haven't seen my home studio. <laughs> yeah, well, you haven't seen me sitting here in my underwear. Could get that out of my head. So I saw you here. You came through Ashland in uh, March. Is that what it was? I think, yeah, I think it was the end of February or something, or early March. I okay. I knew of you, but I had not yet met you, and uh, I had not seen you live. And I'm a rocker, dude. I'm a drummer. And I'm not easy to satisfy musically, but I really, really enjoyed myself at your show. Oh, great. So we love to hear that. And so did everybody else. I mean, I think it was kind of a, wasn't it a last-minute booking by uh, Rich Reese? Yeah, it was. You know, we sometimes we look at a route that we're taking and realize that we're going through somewhere that would be convenient to play, but there's no history of venues or anything. So with Rich living there, he's our agent. You know, it was just a perfect chance to stop by and see him. And then once he said he had a, a gig idea, we just, it was very much a, a risky endeavor. I think even the venue were worried that they didn't know who we were or whether it would do well. But uh, it, it went great. And I, I think we probably found a little filler show, so to speak. And no, no disrespect, actually, because I love the place. But uh, it's hard to go to places like that on the weekends unless you're doing a festival or something. You have to sort of chase the big cities on the weekends. So it's always great to find places you love to go to in the middle of the week with, with venues that you can uh, you know, do well at. So I, I felt great leaving like we'd found one. Well, Rich told me he kind of uh, went to those people over at the Brick Room and insisted. He didn't even give them an opportunity to say no. He said, no, no, you need to do this. I guess they really yeah. didn't know who you were. And uh, it's probably a good like live rehearsal for you before you hit the road road. Well, it, it was great because, like, we, we've got a new guitar player right now. So every show from the beginning of the year was a, a builder. We were adding songs, and he was learning more songs because, I mean, this kid joined the band and had to instantly learn a 90-minute set for the, the Moody Blues cruise that we were doing from Miami on this January 2nd. So he jumped right in the deep end. But then we came back all happy about that and then realized to our horror that wasn't nearly enough songs for the rest of the tour. So we, we threw them back in the studio. And so that was that every gig we were adding more songs. And so they were all, you know, every show was important from that aspect. But uh, that show in particular was weird because I didn't realize it when we, me and Rich booked it, that it was the closest city we would be to where his parents lived. So his parents were at the show, uh, seeing him play with us for the first time. So it was, a, it was just a great vibe in the room, you know. And that kid rips, man. That's unbelievable how well he's adapted to your style, your music, and he looks like he's been playing with you guys for 20 years, man. Uh, well, that was, what was so great. It's funny because that you say that because that tour, 
you know, there was one date only. And everybody's been ratting and raving about the guy. And everywhere we've gone, we've had this sort of new, sort of invigorated band and audience who, you know, you worry at first, will people be like bummed out? Will they be missing Bob, who was, you know, with us for 18 years and phenomenal guitarist in his own right? Uh, you know, we didn't know how it would work out, but this kid is so calm, collected, and into it that he won people over night after night. And there was only one night that this couple came up to me after a show, actually in Sun Valley, Idaho. And uh, this young guy comes up and he's like shaking his head. He goes, oh, what's going on with the new guy? And I said, what do you mean? And he says, I, 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 he's not fitting in at all. And I said, wow, that's funny you're saying that because everybody's really digging it. And he goes, he, he doesn't know the lyrics. Well, you know, he's learning how to play all the songs and then he's starting to do backup vocals. I said, which lyric? And it turned out it was like one of the Irish covers that's a, a real tough one to learn anyway. But if you're a, a real purist of the rebel ballads, you know, the, the fight in the English ballads, and you hang on every word. And apparently at one point, when he was singing backup, he got one of the words wrong, only to find out that he'd been told what to sing by our bass player, Bren, been in the band since I started the band and that's what he's been singing all along for the last 28 years and so the new kid got the brunt of the fact that probably none of the band know what the hell I'm saying half the time uh, and they're just going up there mouthing whatever they think it sounds like but it was hilarious to me that, that if that's the worst negative comment doing really good but and we're talking about Justin Peacoat right yeah when did he start with the band his first show was January 2nd. Wow. On the celebrity cruise ship in the middle of the freaking ocean off of Mexico with some serious guitar players, almost every session player out of Los Angeles was on that ship because all these bands that we were with have all, you know, hired other people because they're all 70s bands and people have passed away or left or whatever. So you had this just huge number of session guys and really accomplished players and legendary people all the moody blues guys were there and everybody had heard about this new kid for some reason so we had this big audience of, of musicians side stage for his very first gig and i remember i just looked at him i went you all set he goes think so but I, I got the shakes almost as we went on and it was just great it, it was right off the bat it felt good and it's just been a surprise to me how it's almost like, you know, sometimes you don't know what you need till it happens. And I think the band, after 28 years, was getting a little bit, we were getting a little bit directionless. You know, we, we were supposed to start an album a year ago. We hadn't done it yet. I didn't really know why in my mind. But in hindsight, I now realize that just the band, you know, if, if it runs course for Bob, he wasn't mentally in it anymore. And uh, he's somebody that I wrote with a lot over the years. And I, I, I'd had one experience just trying to write something last year with him, and it had not gone as usual. There was definitely friction and tension. And just for, you know, familiarity, it's just being around each other as much as we were. I think it just had got run its course. And so when he left, I was pretty devastated at first because it was a huge loss. There was only five of us in the band. Uh, you know, that's one-fifth of your band 20% of your band leaving and you know you've, you've got huge commitments coming up in, in a month and a half from when he first told us uh, it just seemed overwhelming to me now looking back on it I almost wish it had happened sooner because it would have gotten us going quicker and Bob could have gotten on with what he wants to do 
sooner and like all I'm sure he agonized over the decision for a long long time so it, it's just weird but now I wouldn't swap what happened for anything we started writing again we're, we're, we're talking about recording you know it, it, I've set the studio up again and, you know Justin lives up near me so he's been coming over we've been jamming and writing it's just great it, it's, it's really a shot in the arm you know well, it sounds like you guys are getting some new blood in there and reviving uh, the energy of the band. And you could tell on stage that you guys felt fresh and were having a really good time. Great. To use words way overused by politicians, mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, you know, I always gauge things by the crowd if I'm, uh, I'm not only watching the band, I'm watching how the crowd is responding or reacting. And... Uh, those yeah. people were having a good time, man, and it was a packed house and short notice and middle of the week. So you guys must have killed on the road, I'm sure. It, it was great. It was surprising to me that all the shows were above even our normal uh, sort of crowd-wise. We had a lot of even the Ireland trip that we just did. You know, we bring 120 Americans with us, but it was sold out so early, and there was at least 20, 30 people on the waiting list for people to cancel. That hadn't happened in, in a good few years, so I think. Sometimes just positive energy starts to spill out all over the place. And, you know, the shows have been going great. We had a lot of sellouts and a lot of uh, the whole Danish tour, which is very problematic for us because they have a very different idea of who we are than the rest of the world does. The, the Danish see us very much as a folk rock band. And we sell out these venues that are off-seated. Oh. And uh, <laughs> they're just sitting there looking up at you. And you see what we do. We're, we're definitely sort of a, a band that likes to see people dancing and having a great time but they're staring at you like that and they're so for the judge you really have to have your eight game up and over there you're dealing with that you're dealing with a language barrier you're dealing with a lot of weird stuff so we basically like I, I started it we went straight from Ireland which is like balls to the wall packed venues with everybody going nuts from the get go and uh, you've got 120 Americans who have been waiting for this trip for a year and a half and are on holiday, so they're going nuts. The Irish are feeding off of them, and everybody's mixed together. It's just sort of this real easy, fun show. You can just get up there and really do what you, you know, what you, you love to do and play your normal show. Then you go to Denmark, and it's absolutely the opposite. It's early shows, two sets, sit-down crowd, sober as a judge, uh, great PA systems, beautiful venues, great sounding rooms. But you, you have to reinvent yourself. And we've done that over there. We fought it for a while and we just got up there and blasted through. And, you know, we, we wondered why it didn't seem to be going over as well as it has other places. And then you start to realize that, you know, I, I came from a family of entertainers and my dad always told me, you know, when you're entertaining, that's what you're supposed to do. So if your audience is looking for something, instead of fighting them, give it to them. If it's in your toolbox, give it to them. And so what I realized was, the Danish wanted to hear me speak a bit more. They wanted a little more introduction to the songs. They wanted a little bit more sort of history along with the Irish stuff. They're very into that Celtic uh, history. And uh, it's it just, I had to sort of go more performing arts center type show. And even physically, we had to come down a bit because we're a loud bunch of bastards right. at the best of times. Right. And so our drummer, very, very... Uh, I don't say he's a great drummer, but he gets very few compliments from me for being cooperative with me. <laughs> but he was very, he was very cooperative. And he agreed to go on bundle sticks, which he was a drummer. No, wow. the actor, a drummer who's really worked out. Dave's a very, very stylistic drummer. Everything is planned and precisely performed and executed. And there's, 
you know, there's a lot of little nuances going on. And when he plays with the bundlesticks, he just can't do half of it. Uh, and so he was able to do that, really get into it. And the band realized what I was doing because two shows in, we were getting standard ovations and, and uh, just people begging us to come back sooner. And I realized that that little adjustment had really put us in the right frame of mind for the, for the Danish crowd. And, you know, at this stage in our career, I feel as though, you know, you know, I tell young bands this all the time, if you want to be in music and you're getting to play your guitar to make a living, if every now and again you have to stretch your boundaries a little bit or, or push yourself a little bit in order to get that audience captivated, then that's what you do. Otherwise, you can be absolutely doing your own thing, not compromising and absolutely sticking to your guns, and you'll be in your underwear in your bedroom playing your guitar to yourself. You know, it's just the way it is. It's entertainment, and you're... You're trying to uh, you're trying to captivate people, and, and that's sort of what what we've always done. We we stuck to our guns on many levels. We've never embraced the cheesy Irish sort of uh, circuit that's out there. We've also didn't sort of just become a Pogues clone band like we saw so many other bands doing and being rewarded heavily for it in terms of of their careers. But we always felt like musically we would stick to our guns and and do the sort of wider style that we do where we sort of try to make it a mixture of many genres.
and I just write what we feel like writing. But with that said, when you then perform it, there's nothing wrong with coming down a bit in volume or introducing the songs a little bit differently or speaking a bit slower so that a foreign audience can understand you or, you know, that sort of way. God knows I've been speaking slowly to Americans for years. <laughs> <laughs> Once you know who your audience is and, and you create that show for that audience, you don't have to recreate that show again. You know, that's exactly it, though. It's that every show is its own event. And I find that, you know, almost to my detriment because I have the same concerns about every gig that I had about gigs 15 years ago. And, you know, I like that because it keeps me on my toes. I try to, you know, have different stuff every night. Um, I don't believe in changing set lists constantly only because it's part of the craft putting a set list together yeah. and the set list doesn't work until it's been played many times. It's like doing a play, you know. I grew up in the theater. I, I wasn't personally in it, but my mom and dad were. And I would go see these plays and, you know, sometimes I'd work them. You know, I might be doing help with the lights or something. And I'd see these guys get up every night and deliver a performance and play. But after the fifth or sixth night, I was like, yeah, you know, I heard that joke before last night and the last night. And, oh, I, I saw that, that bit of physical comedy, the guy fall down. But it gets a huge laugh every night. And I realized this guy is perfecting that fall every night. Every night it's getting a little bit better. So that's another thing I try to explain to the band as well, is that, you know, it's not for you. I'm not entertaining you every night. I'm entertaining the people who bought tickets. Right. So we as a band will perfect this craft as best we can so that every single night, those people who paid, you know, 20 bucks on a Wednesday or who paid 20 bucks on a Saturday, it doesn't matter to them. It's still their 20 bucks. Right. And I want them to leave thinking, this was one of the best shows I've seen. Right. I don't want them leaving thinking, ah, it's a Wednesday night, they phoned it in, they're saving it for the 10,000 people at the festival on Saturday. We don't. The show you saw in Ashland at the Brick Room was the exact same show I did to 1,200 people sold out at the knitting factory in Boise a couple of nights later. You know, it, it didn't make any difference to me. It was all about people leaving that show saying, I want to go see them again and I'm going to bring two of my friends because they have to see this. And, you know, that's what I mean by you're not compromising your art. You're not compromising your show or what you do. If anything, you're perfecting it, trying to make it better. But you are willing to tweak things a little bit in order to make the experience better for the audience. And so if that means you're in a room where the acoustics are so good that if you turn everything up full and play your drums as hard as you can, you're going to bleed people's ear holes. Right. And at the end of the day, those people are going to go home going, I think I liked them, but I had to leave. My head was busting so bad. So we get to do that a lot. We get to get up on big stages and, and rock out, and we get to play more intimate shows. And so they're the kind of areas I'm willing to to be flexible, you know? It's something I learned a lot from my parents, but also from watching my favorite bands. I mean, I certainly didn't come up with this idea of my own. If anything, I just watched bands that I love and saw them, you know, some bands doing acoustic performances are, you know, when the huge MTV unplugged thing was going on, you know, those guys were naked up there. Nirvana was naked up there. Here's yeah. a band that normally blows your freaking head off. And the fact that he was able to explain the songs a bit, and like, it was an eye-opener to me, and I realized, wow, that's a real showman. That's somebody who gets that he's in a different format now, but he's going to work at this until he knows he's got it right, because otherwise you're getting up there... And, you know, you're, you're letting yourself down. You're in a sort of a deal with the, with the audience when you do a show. Their agreement is that they're willing to, you know, cough over 
hard-earned cash in order to see if you've got something to say. And you better have something to say. <laughs> you just won't be in the business that long because the audiences are, as we all know, audiences come and go. It's another reason we don't put out albums every year. You know, it cracks me up. I do these festivals, Irish festivals, and there'll be a band that we see a lot, you know, any, any band really, and there's many of them. And every year at the merch table, they have a new album. And I, I, at first I get that feeling of like, oh yeah, lucky bastards, how are you that prolific? You know, my last album's three years old, and, and you know, most of these people here have already bought it, so now I'm, you know, struggling to get good merch sales. And then they'll say, oh, have you heard it yet? Here, here's a copy. And I'm like, oh, great. I'll have a listen to this back at the hotel. But I'll tell you, 80% of the time, at least, it's pure shite. Gobshite, even. Yeah, it, yeah. it's because you just, nobody is that prolific. Songs need to grow, develop, uh, be rewritten. And, you know, nobody writes a novel in three days, sends it to the editor, and the editor goes, this is perfect. We're releasing it tomorrow. There's rewrites, and there's screenplays get rewritten, and movies get rewritten. So these records are forever. This is all you have. When you're dead and gone, your music will still be out there. So my idea is let's at least be not embarrassed about it. You know, let my son proudly say, oh, yeah, my dad was in the Young Dubs, and not, oh, yeah, my dad was in that band that put out an album every year, and if you were lucky, there was one song on there you liked. You know, I just sort of feel like that's part of the, the whole thing is that your audience is not stupid. And if you treat them that way, just to grab another 15 books off them or 9.99 on iTunes, you're going to let them down and eventually you're going to lose them. So I'd rather make them wait a little bit, but know that the contract I have with them is if you stay coming to see my band and you support me and let me do this for a living, I will do my best to give you something worth paying for. You mentioned that your parents were in the theater business. Let's, let's go back. You were born where exactly? I was born in the south side of Dublin, a place called Monkstown, which is near the biggest town to it is Dunleary, which is the uh, one of the main ports in Dublin. It was famously where the King of England landed, and they called it Kingstown. And as soon as we uh, got rid of that inconvenience, we uh, changed it back to Dunleary. <laughs> <laughs> what year were you born? So I was born in 65. 65? Yes, you 1965. Mean, I'm older than you? Well, there's very few people left that are, so oh, poor lady. goodness. <laughs> I'm not saying you look old. You look great, but I'm just saying I didn't. <laughs> but, you, but you look stupid. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like being a young lad growing up in Ireland? It, it was good. You know, I grew up sort of predominantly cable age in the 80s, and it was, uh, you know, the music scene for us was very much coming from England. Uh, a little bit from America, but and then you had the odd Irish band that would break out. You had Lizzie, you had Boomtown Rats, you two. I remember like lots of people I knew being into music. And uh, looking back on it now, I realize it was a very uh, sort of recession-heavy period in Irish history. It was a, over 20% unemployment when I graduated. I, I graduated university. The idea was I was going to be a journalist. And so it set me sights on... Uh, Los Angeles because my sister was here, and I thought to myself, this could be a, you know the place to maybe try to get into television journalism. Or the idea of just writing wasn't really appealing to me, but the idea of being a newscaster or, or an investigative journalist or something was was what I thought I wanted to do. So obviously, like all mothers, my mom didn't want me just playing guitar. She wanted me to at least have something to fall back on. And believe me, if you had heard my guitar playing, I, I needed 
something big to fall back on <laughs> because it was going to be a big fall. <laughs> and uh, so I just started, you know, going to college and jamming locally, and then we started gigging out a bit locally, and that's where I first met Brian, our bass player. We actually just uh, tweeted a picture of me and him when we were in Ireland. We took a picture at the very bus stop, which is still there, that we met at near Belgrade Square. And, you know, he started playing bass. I started moving away from lead guitar, which I sucked at. I started playing more rhythm guitar, and then I started singing. And uh, we got a band together. Those last few years in Ireland of college and all were absolutely brilliant. We were gigging. I had a college life of all my friends there. Then I had the, the home life of all my friends who lived in Munster that I grew up with. And it was just really a great time. So when I left at 21, it really was supposed to be just for a couple of years. And the idea was I'd go to America, continue on with the studies, do some more uh, journalist-based courses and stuff, and then uh, come back to Ireland and spend the rest of my days over there, you know, play music on the side. And it all went horribly wrong. <laughs> In what way? Well, I came out here, I started driving super shuttles. I uh, met a producer from KCT, public television here in Los Angeles. You know KCT? Sesame Street. Absolutely. Of course. Absolutely. And, and uh, yes, I, I would have I would have done better as a puppet uh, <laughs> than I did as a journalist on there. I think but, you would have made a very so cute Muppet, frankly. I, 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 I see Muppet in you. Listen, I, I could have spent the rest of my life with my hands up some puppet stars. <laughs> I could have been the Irish freaking uh, uh, puppet, puppet that shows up all green and shit-faced or something. You know what? It was not very much the un United Colors of Benetton on Sesame Street. I don't recall that there was very much ethnicity other than different uh, colored puppets. Yeah, yeah. It's a puppet from Transylvania or something. Let's say for Oh, the card. One, two, three, of course. Right. Yeah. And we, I mean, we all grew up in Sesame Street, too. It's funny how, you know, Americans started a whole lot of stuff that became massive in Europe. So anyhow, ended up doing that and then started playing music again. And it was a slow progression. Music is something that once it's got its claws in you and once live performance has its claws in you, it's very, very difficult to stop. So I started doing it again and just realized that journalism really wasn't what I wanted to do. So I sort of had a period of, of being lost, of not knowing what to do and I ended up set dressing movies and uh, that was just another fluky thing when you're in LA you bump into people and somebody else offers you another job and then you get another job and one thing led to another I ended up working on a on a very strange movie called Buffy the Vampire Slayer oh. <laughs> and it, it became a cult classic I heard afterwards but when we worked on it it was absolute disaster first time director who they ended up shooting the movie twice basically but it meant that we all got to stay on it and it went union and we all made a bit of money. And from that, I ended up fluking into owning a pub. And from owning the pub, I started playing a band every Saturday night when we formed the Young Dubliners. And uh, that led to a record deal, which is just, it was the weirdest thing because we weren't looking for one. You know, it was like I owned the bar, so my gig was safe. <laughs> you know, I was the one who decided who played on Saturday night. And we created this very strange little oasis in Santa Monica, California, where every Saturday night we were the headliner. The middle band was the Dave King band, who, Dave King, who's now known more as Flog and Molly. Uh, the opening band was the band called Search with PJ Smith and Manny, and PJ was from Dublin, Manny was American. Uh, PJ ended up, he's actually out on the road with Ed Sheeran, and Manny became the uh, 
the, the guitar tech and performer with uh, Jackson Brown. So it's just a, it's a great history that that Saturday night, everybody's still in the business. And then on, on the Friday night was two bands that I had sort of met in L.A. One was the Uninvited, who are a great American rock band who broke up a few years back, but they had a great run and they signed to Atlantic and, you know, had a couple of records out there. And the other band was Brother, who were these great Australians who had come over to busk in L.A. And I found them and, and just doing something else, didn't discover them. We just sort of, we bumped into each other. And I asked them if they would play. And you actually saw Angus open up for us in yeah. Ashland. He lives in Ashland now at the Brick Room. But Angus was one of the originals and him and two brothers and a cousin. So the, the weekend at my bar was just unbelievable. It what was, was the name of the bar? Original. It was called Fair City. Fair City? That's what people call Dublin. Fair okay. City and okay. Dublin Pub. Okay. That's what we called it. And uh, it only lasted for four years because we started in 91, and by 94, we had gotten a record deal. We'd hit the road, and I just couldn't be both. It was it was either, are you going to be a tour musician or are you going to own a pub? And anybody who owns a bar will tell you you have to be there. You can't be a, a long-distance pub owner. So I, I moved on, and the pub went away, and uh, I hit the road with, with I think there were seven of us in the band at the time, original lineup. And uh, we, we were getting airplay, AAA radio had started, and we, we got lucky and were one of the bands getting almost as much airplay as, as uh, Dave Matthews and Oza Motley and, and uh, uh, Russian Root. All these bands were all starting out and getting airplay. So we got to travel right away. And uh, I remember, I tell people all the time, we would be in hotel rooms, shitholes in New York with two rooms with four beds and eight people and you have to decide which band member we are willing to share a bed with with many pillows. <laughs> Holy cow, really? It was and, that uh, it was that all, tight? Oh we we did that for so long. I mean I remember we actually had worked it out that we could survive on two hundred and fifty dollars a week each. And uh, everybody was, you know, roommates with people or you know, keeping your, your home costs way down and uh that's what we were touring. We just wanted to get out there. And we went, people say to me all the time, you know, how did you start touring? You know, how did you get all that fan base right away? And the truth is, we didn't. We just got out there, did it until the word started to get out. And radio would play you a little bit, but if you went to that town and played on that radio station for them, then they would put you in heavier rotation. And it was long before, you know, the very programmed radio where it's very. There's very few free-form radio stations. Back at AAA, they were really doing that. They were they were mostly programming themselves, so you could get in with program directors and start to get a lot of airplay. So we just the country started to open up to us, and uh, that was it. That was about 28 years ago, I think, and we've been uh, basically on the road ever since. Despair. The cloud that is to 
your bass player, he was one of your original mates in the band? Yeah, he basically, he stayed in Ireland a couple of years later after I left. And then as soon as he was ready, he came out to check it out. And then we started, we played a couple of bands together early on. And then we all sort of went our own way. I, I got, like the Irish thing was funny because if you'd known me as a musician in Ireland, you'd never would have predicted that I would be doing any sort of Irish ballads. But it was funny how it hit me when it, once I was in America for any length of time. I started to get homesick for the music, but I also appreciated Irish music a lot more when I was when I was away. And you started to realize how much it was appreciated in America. And I mean, it, it was you know St. Patrick's Day when I was growing up. That was a holy day. It's it's our patron saint, and uh, you know it was a day off school, and there was a very very cheesy parade in the city center that if you were unlucky, you were dragged to by your parents. But yeah, there was no such thing as going nuts or having these wild nights. It was only when I got to America that I, I realized what a big thing the, the whole sort of Irish-American culture is over here. And that was it. I sort of realized, okay, let me see. I was heavily starting to really get into big country and the water boys and Lizzie and, and uh, the Pogues. All these different bands were starting to play Irish-sounding stuff to me, but with a drum because I always wanted to be in a rock and roll band, you know, I never wanted to be solo, never wanted to be in a folk band. So all of a sudden I saw the chance to have an Irish feel to it and to definitely hold on to your identity, but to also be true to your songwriting. And that's sort of how our, our whole sound developed, was that mixing Americans with Irish musicians and letting everybody sort of come to the table. And then we developed our sort of sound, which, you know, I, I, I certainly not the most original thing in the world, but I think we are 
we do have a niche. When you listen to all of the Celtic rock bands, I think the Young Dubs do have a distinctive sound, which is, you know, what you strive for in a band, I think. Well, I mean, that's something that I keyed into when I was at your show was I'd never heard anything like you guys, and that's what made it really enjoyable is, you know, you hear bands that have similarities, but I had never heard anything like what you guys do, and the way you mix it up it makes it even more fun. And I think that's what made the show for me was it wasn't just this uh, level rock uh, exhibition here. You guys were doing all kinds of stuff that was very unexpected, and I think the unexpected is what people like the most. Yeah, thanks. That's that's, uh, that's I should write that down. That's a yeah. good explanation. Well, I have it recorded now, so... Good, bad, good, bad. You know, I can't look at Brendan, as you know, anymore without seeing Robert De Niro. It fucking freaks me out. Oh, he, he, it's hilarious. <laughs> you know, we all joke, obviously, we've, you know, me and him are, are as close to brothers as you could get. Probably been in bands together since we were 15. But the, uh, we do have a huge joke about, over the years, he developed this sort of talent to, to do a few impressions that he absolutely nails. And, uh, you know, it's 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 all in the arsenal of uh, the young dubs because it's everybody has their sort of characteristic traits and yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a great fun thing with him. But he, I saw him doing a video and it's it's uh, it is it's pretty good. It's really it's pretty good, fun. dude. He does a pretty killer Chris Walken too, which freaked me out. Well, he he did yeah. the De Niro the night of the of the show. And the next morning, of course, we all had breakfast together. And uh, he did his Chris Walk, and, and it is. It's spot on. He's, he does an excellent oh, yeah. interpretation. I've actually done radio interviews where, you know, me and the DJ will be in on it, and the DJ will say, so are you guys started in Hollywood, and, you know, are there many celebrities that follow you guys? And I'll say, well, you know, it's funny you should mention that, but uh, sometimes they come out the road just for a little break from the, the grind and come on the road and just live the, the musician life. I said, like, for example... We've got Christopher Walken with us right now. And Brendan will get on the mic at the radio station and start doing it. And I swear to God, they will be, the phone bank will light up <laughs> and people will absolutely buy it. But this guy, the Christopher Walken, is on tour with him. <laughs> he's a slayer, man, and he's funny as fuck. He's a super nice guy, and uh, his energy on stage is, is great as a bass player. He's always smiling and having a good time. Actually, all of them are. They're all smiling. I mean, Dave is into his thing, man. You can see Dave is like a drum scientist back there. He's very serious about what he's doing, and he's super tight and on it. He knows exactly what to do. But everybody else, even Chaz, when he gets that violin thing going, man, you guys kill it on stage. You're definitely made to be a live act. Well, I think, and I think, you know, you've sort of uh, hit on what uh, the, the magic sometimes of life is that, you know, to try to put this band together would be impossible because there's certain parts of everybody that would more than likely drive them in another direction. Like, you got to remember, Dave was the drummer for Bruce Dickinson's solo work. Uh, you know, here's a drummer that played with a massive metal legend. Then went into a full-on Latin band called, uh, uh, what were they called again? Tribe of Gypsies or something. And, uh, you know, when I found him, he just happened to be looking to get a couple of more gigs. We happened to be auditioning drummers. He was the very last drummer to come into the studio. We were exhausted. We'd already gone all day with drummers. We'd already sort of decided who we were going to ask to do it. He came in, was a major pain in the arse because he took forever to set up the drum kit. But what we didn't realize was he was the only one who had heard our original drummer 
listened so carefully to what he had done to where he realized that he had put tambourines on the hi-hat stand and all this different stuff. So he was meticulously building the drum kit so that he could play exactly what we were looking for. And as soon as he started playing, we knew this was the guy. And all that day, you know, had we had we not, you know, waited that long, had we been too bored to give him a shot or too exhausted to give him a shot, it wouldn't have happened. And so it's a miracle that we ended up together. Chaz, you know, Chaz would never have been hired by most of the Irish bands because he's not a Celtic fiddler. The only band that Chaz could have gotten into was ours because I wanted a lead guitar and fiddle to play together and create another sound that would remind me of Big Country, of the twin guitars, because we didn't have twin lead guitars. And I happened to find the one fiddle player who plays his fiddle like a lead guitar. And, you know, it was a miracle. And Bob, being Bob, a rhythm guitar player, like, you got to remember, I had this exact lineup for over 15 years. So even though Dave wasn't the original drummer and Bob was the original guitar player, they joined in 99. So it was, uh, or 99, I think 2001. So there was another version of the Young Dubs in the 90s, but it was that, uh, you know, most people don't even know that now. Most people know the band. So you have found guys that would stay with you as long as they did and who all bring something so unique to the table. It's like there will never, I don't know that there'll ever be a band exactly like us again, just because I don't think you could get five more strange bedfellows than we happen to get. And for some reason it works. It's just, uh, it's one of those, you know, there's, there's lots of bands I can point to that, that I, I, YouTube being like the obvious classic where four kids get together in a band and we're still doing it to this day. It's, it's the dream of the perfect band, but I think I came close to the to the next level of that dream where you you end up with a bunch of guys that come together and are willing to, you know, be on the road and put in the work. And, you know, the reason I think, the other reason I think that we're, we're the live band we are is because we work so much. You know, we play so much together that it's like watching a, a good basketball team where the, the, you know, the guy passes totally blind behind him right into the hands of the other guy that he knows is going to be there. Um, and that's sort of what we're like. It's, it's when we write together now, it takes us no time at all to get a song that's been written ready to play live because we do it so much that there's an instant, everybody brings their part to it. We work it out. We, everybody brings their strengths in and then we're ready to play those songs. And what I find, one of the, the highlights of being in this band is I could write a song on my own at home on acoustic guitar, bring it to the band, and by the end of the day, I hardly even realize I wrote that. You know, that they improve it so much that you're just blown away by the fact that this is now going to go down in history as a song you wrote. But yet, you know, a lot of it had to do with your band members being able to play and, and make the most of what you did. So, you know, we're very lucky that way. And that's why when Bob was leaving, it was such a crippling uh, thing for me at first, and I just didn't know how the hell we were going to deal with that. But then Justin, we, we just got lucky again. You know, we found another kindred spirit who's a younger guy who has been struggling for over 12, 14 years, trying to get in a band that would take him on the road and teaching and never gave up on the dream. Was still, when I got him, was still playing in about 10 bands, two solo gigs, you know, four-hour solo gigs, 
when, when he's just playing four sets and learning a gazillion covers, and yet had all this great talent in him. So I felt like I, 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 I sort of took the lid off to Genie when we got him, because now we're realizing, holy shit, this guy has so many sides to him. And I'll tell you, my phone right now is almost out of memory because of the amount of videos the kid keeps sending me <laughs> of him with new ideas. And I, 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 I have to keep telling him in the middle of the tour, would you wait till we get through the tour before we start writing? <laughs> it's like, you still have over 60 young drum songs to learn. Wow. Uh, you know, that's, but he's so enthusiastic. Um, and it's different, you know. Yeah, I, I realized we asked him to do something very difficult. We said, we want you to play exactly what Bob played. And then when you've got that, we'll talk about branching out and doing right. your own thing. Because we needed that comfort level. We needed that landing pad to get over the shock. And we needed to be able to hear those melodies and hear those parts live on stage so we could be relaxed. So it was a very selfish thing on behalf of the other four of us. And we really worked it. I mean, he's a very good learner. He's a great teacher, and that's helped him be a great learner. But... He learned it note for note, what Bob was doing. Bob, as a very gracious thing, also worked with him. It showed him a lot of the parts and what he, how he played things and how he, what effects he was using. And all of it came together. But now, Justin is doing his own thing. And now we're totally relaxed with him, changing the solos and coming up with different parts that are more comfortable for him to play, but still keeping... The, the basic vibe of it, and so that's that's what's really given us the shot of adrenaline. It's like you, you know, you'll see the whole band turn and look at him throughout the show, where he'll do something wrong. Like, Holy shit, what was that? That was great, you know. That hopefully we'll remember after to say whatever you did, you don't you worry in the middle. Do that again, you know. So that, it, it's great how we got lucky again because I mean we fluked into this guy as well. It's just uh, we've been very very lucky. You can feel the love and the trust, which I know the trust is very important and uh, don't seem to be worried about too much except uh, having a good time playing your music. <laughs> Thank you. So tell me about your parents, man. You were born in 65, you said? Yep. So what were your parents and, doing uh, back then? Well, it was funny because it was, it had, I, I always tell people if I'd been born in America now, I would have been, you know, loaded and uh, living the uh, kept child life because... My mom actually was at, had a television show, was part of a television show for almost 25 years. And my dad was in the, uh, the, the, the behind the scenes work doing a lot of stage managing and floor managing. And both of them were part of the Irish television station when it first started in the 60s. And that's how they met. And my mother was the first female vocalist on Irish television. And my dad was one of the first original crew guys there. So we sort of grew up with that life of my mum being very recognised, my dad being sort of a bit of a character in Dublin, so he was known that way. But we were broke. We grew up, you know, they were all paid scale, and uh, people would see my mum in the street. How are you, Anne? This show the other day are more likely with Irish people. How are you, Anne? Hated that song the other day. (laughs) More than happy to tell you you sucked. Talk about keeping your feet on the ground. So we just sort of grew up around show business, but not feeling any different from anybody else on the street. We lived in a flat, and uh, our neighbours walked through our house to get to their house, which was, uh, looking back on it, very strange, but yet felt totally normal to me. 
and I sort of saw them all as my my uncles and aunties, really, you know, that sort of way. So we uh, did that. My mum, even though she had this television show going, she worked a second job. Uh, the two of them split up when I was about eight, and uh, my dad sort of battled his own demons with alcohol, what have you, and my mum basically became a single parent and raised the three of us, and my dad eventually got his shit together. It, it, near the end of his life, and ended up getting a part on a big soap opera in Ireland that was starting up and still going. It was actually called Fair City because that's, like I was saying, that's the sort of the, the name for Dublin. And uh, it was a Dublin sitcom. And he did that for almost till the end of his life. He ended up having a stroke and to leave the uh, the show and then passed away a few years later. But, uh, but it was a great fun thing for him to suddenly get playing this at 75. <laughs> so he went out on top. Uh, he was having a good time. He was. He, he told me a story once about how he'd uh, gone into confession and the priest had said, you know, I haven't seen you in a long time, Charlie, you know, what brings you back to, to God and confess your sins? And he said, well, you, you father, you know, I've been on this television show recently and it's, my life has changed drastically and even though I'm 75 years old, I'm, I'm dating a 25-year-old woman. And the priest said, well, Charlie... That's a bit shocking, but it's not a sin. Why are you telling me? He says, why am I telling you? I'm fucking telling everyone. So he basically was living the life of Riley there for the end. But it, it was it was a uh, it was an interesting growing up, and you know, like uh, we, we we wanted for nothing. You know, it was what we weren't in squalor by any stretch of imagination. My mother made sure by working her arse off that we always had what we needed, but we were definitely, you know, sort of what the Irish class system would refer to as lower middle class. You know, we, only the Irish and English could have class systems within the class system. You know, it's like you were just middle class. Oh, no, you had to be great at which middle class were you? And uh, so, you know, it, it was a great, it was a great growing up. It really was. A lot of friends and, you know, got into music early and, uh, you know, Got my, my third level education, so at least I had that in my pocket if it's got your bit it's ever needed. And uh yeah, it was it was good. And then came to America, as I said originally, just to, to do journalism. That was told my mum I'd be gone for two years tops, as she reminds me constantly whenever we're telling the story to anybody. Well of course he he lied. <laughs> he lied when he left and said he'd be right back and, and then to her horror, my sister had already left and then my brother, with her five years between each of us my brother then followed me and my sister out to L.A. as well, and he now works in L.A., and uh, we're all over here, and my mum's living in Ireland in a row. So. Oh, my God, you totally yeah. bailed on your mom, all of you. We, we, all, we all bailed <laughs> on her. And, uh, so don't worry, she reminds us regularly. But it's funny, she, she's you know, so Irish all the way. We've, we've talked about her coming out to America so many times. But Has she ever been? Me. Oh, she comes out twice a year. Okay, okay. She, she's 82 this year, and she goes to America twice. She went to South Africa last year to visit a friend of hers on her own. Wow. She goes to the Alps to, to visit a friend of hers who lives in uh, somewhere in Switzerland. And uh, she just got back from West Cork, which is a bit of a, of a distant suicide of Ireland from where she's living in Dublin. So she's a very young 82. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's tough for her with us all gone. And we're, we're definitely getting to the stage I was just with her. I actually got to spend Easter with her and uh, a couple of days after that because, as I said, we were in Ireland on tour and then Denmark, so I was able to hop back and 
but we stay with her for three or four days and then for a week at the end of it. So it's, you know, between her coming out here and the three of us going back to see her, we, we, we do see quite a bit of her, but it's, it's going to get more difficult now. And, you know, God forbid, as, as she gets older, you worry about falling and stuff like that. She still lives on her own. She's got a great apartment and a building with a bunch of other older people and younger people and everybody helps out. And so it's, uh, you know, it's right now it's, it's doable, but we'll have to see what the future holds because she's definitely, she's getting up there. Yeah, I think all of us around our age are looking at our parents going, you know, we can see the clock ticking. and uh, Yes. But she sounds like a badass. It sounds like her health is reasonable and she's got good community. And uh, you said you have a brother and sister. Are they older or younger than you? The sister's older than me, five years older. My brother's five years younger. Okay, so you're the middle child. Ah, how'd that play well, out for you early on? Yet. Oh, it still plays out to this day. You, you are very often the peacemaker. You are the... Uh, not that I enjoy the title, but the glue, as they say, I used to be more of the glue than I am now so much. I think I, I got older and grumpier. You know, I let them battle out their own battles sometimes. But it's uh, it was great growing up because my sister was, was a big, big uh, supporter. You know, she helped my mum a lot. And, you know, they banged heads a lot over the fact. She was a girl as well. You know, my mum was, was uh, you know, sort of watching my sister blossom and, and uh, do all of her stuff and, I think my mum, having given up so much to raise us, that was a bit of a tough one on her. Uh, so they had their typical issues growing up, but she always looked down and took care of me as well and my younger brother. So the reason I moved to America was it was just the obvious thing that I was going to go wherever she was. And uh, that's kind of what my brother did. And you got to remember, when I graduated, like I said, there was huge unemployment. There was literally, I think, almost 80% of everybody who graduated over the couple of years when I did all emigrated. And it was it was actually written about. The 80s was almost comparable to the famine, the amount of the million people that left Ireland. And, you know, the big thing was they would tell you, you know, we know you have to leave. They would, they would give sermons in church even, but they'd say to all the young people out here who are thinking about going to England or America or Australia, you know, by all means go and find your success, but don't forget us and make sure you bring it back. And that's kind of what this Irish tour that we do is part of. It's us bringing 100 plus Americans to Ireland to spend money and, you know, bring something to help the economy and also show the country that we love, that we left, but that we never forgot.
I'd like to. I'd like to go. I've heard nothing but wonderful things. I have friends that actually moved there a few years ago, and they absolutely adore the place. And uh, uh, they may not return. Yeah. Well, we we always say we bring a hundred with us. We don't always bring a hundred back. What was it like in your very youthful days in school, like in elementary school? How how did that go for you? Well, my parents had this wonderful idea that I should go to an Irish speaking elementary school, uh, which meant strictly Irish. The only time you spoke English was during English. Um, if they even found out you were speaking English on the way home from school, you were in trouble. Mm. And uh, it, it was amazing. I was fluent in both languages. Um, it was a very artsy school. In fact, two of my classmates went on to be in pretty big bands in Ireland. One was the Hot House Flowers, and one was My Bloody Valentine, who uh, you know both had pretty good world careers. With three of us, we did a puppet show. <laughs> to go back to what we were talking about earlier, we did a puppet show for the big... They call them fesh in Ireland. All the schools compete against each other in the country. And we ended up in the finals. It was a very, you know, artsy sort of great school to be a part of, except for the Irish part that you could not speak English, which then, you know, wasn't really helping me with, with the rest of my future because very few people speak Gaelic in this world, even in Ireland. <laughs> but it was part of a revival. Like my parents were, especially my dad was very much into the Irish culture and, you know, we can't let it go, we can't let the English destroy our culture and all the rest of it. But it was great because years later, you know, my Irish is terrible now, you definitely forget it. Me and Brad will sometimes, if we're, if we're trying to say something in, in secret, we can burst into a little sort of pigeon Irish in the van and we can understand what we're talking about without anybody else knowing. But yeah, it was, it was interesting, but then for secondary school or high school, as you call it, my mum pushed the issue that I needed to go to an English school and, you know, learn the, the subjects in English. So it, it, that was a little bittersweet because that school was way less entertainment-based or arts-based. It was very just your normal, uh, run by the brothers, the Presbyterian brothers. And uh, it was good education, but I look back at it a lot less fondly than I do elementary. But then I went to college and used University College Dublin was a was a great university and, and I had a blast there. So I'd say two out of three ain't bad, as, as Meatloaf once said. Yeah. Do you have children? I have one boy, yeah. How old is he? He's 15 years old and uh, 15 going on 21 at the moment. He's at that perfect age where Caddy's not quite so cool as he used to be <laughs> at 11 and 12. And I'm constantly reminding him of how cool Daddy actually is. Uh, but uh, we, we had strange moments. I was, you know, over in school talking to uh, one of the counselors one day and uh, before he went there and because he just started high school and the counselor said, oh, you're from Ireland. The counselor who your son will have a few years from now, he, he was a higher grade counselor and he loves Ireland. And he says, oh, he's out there right now and he calls him into the office and turns out the guy's a huge young dub fan. <laughs> I had all my CDs and was ratting and raving about how, how excited he was and so on the way home I just looked at him and went, what do you think about that? He goes, he goes, I suppose every now and again it's cool what you do. That's as much as I can get out of it. Uh, but the funny part of it is that what they say, and, you know, it's the truest thing in the world, is that if you really want to have an idea of what's going on with them, you have to, all you have to do is remind yourself of what you were doing. And that's the scary and reality-based fact of it, is that were you telling your parents everything? No. Was what your parents did for a living cool? No. You know, it's that age, and I remember 15 was 
definitely the age that I became an asshole to my mother. And, uh, you know, I was out of it by 17, 18. I think I was finally back to being a decent human being. But no doubt about it, those were the years I gave her the hardest time. And, you know, you, you feel terrible looking back at me like, what the hell was I doing to the poor woman? But then I, I see him now, and he's a great kid. He's a straight-A kid, and, you know, which I was till 15 as well. It was after 15, I, my grades started getting a bit dodgy as being popular, telling jokes, and hanging out with girls became a little bit more important than studying. And so I'm keeping an eye on him. And I just constantly remind him that the effort he puts in now will pay off big time down the road. And, you know, you, you want to be your kid's friend and their dad. And it's a, it's a tough line to walk on because you really have to make sure being the dad is up the top of it. Um, and that you're, you're not letting, wanting to be, you know, one of the boys with him and his friends get in the way of, of making sure he's making the right decisions and stuff. So my first time doing this. So, well, as you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a learning process. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I think I was about his age when I threw an iron at my mother uh, because she just wouldn't shut the fuck up. Um, but that's, that's the only Honestly, I remember riding my bike, but I somehow, maybe for convenient purposes of things with my father, I don't have much recollection of my childhood at all. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I read books that people write. You know, I've been listening to uh, Bruce Springsteen's biography that, uh, on audio. If I know it's the actual author that's reading it, it does a lot, which which reminds me of how weird listening to uh, Keith Richards' book was, because he had Johnny Depp and some other English guy putting on what they thought was a Keith Richards accent. Oh, that atrocious. seems really silly. Oh, it's atrocious. But the book is great, so yeah. you sort of get past that just to hear the story. But Springsteen is reading his book, and I envy his memory. Because although I was telling you stuff, that would be the way I would have to write a biology. I'd have to actually have somebody interview me and try to draw out the information. Because when I think back on it, I, there are huge gaps. And there are huge parts of it that I don't remember that well. Especially my parents breaking up and what it was like when my dad was there. I really have very little recollection of my dad living with us except the bad part. And being drunk and, uh, you know, them screaming at each other and stuff. So... You know, that kind of stuff is a little bit... I think maybe trauma creates memory loss. Absolutely. To a certain degree. Yeah. It's self-preservation. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I was only eight when it happened. So, luckily, the the age that my kid's at now, I can look back and remember a little bit more about that. And and it has helped me deal with some of his stuff, you know. He definitely does not want to confide in me when it comes to half the stuff that's going on with whether it's girls or... I mean, you know, you think about it, and, you know, I hope I'm one of those parents who wouldn't have given a shit either way if he was gay or straight or right. whatever. But I've got to be honest with you, you don't know that stuff with your kids. A lot of parents say they do and stuff, but, you know, one of his friends sort of blew the cover recently and said, oh, so Jake was kissing a girl at the dance, and I acted like I didn't hear it. <laughs> there was a big old smile. It was an inner smile that took place because... Not, not, not that I would care either way, but it was just nice to have some indication right. of what the kid's up to, yeah. you know, because that's the part that no way is dad going to find out about. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't bring myself to do the traditional uh, birds and bees conversation. I just sort of touched on it over the years. I don't think anybody does anymore. I actually never told my father anything. I told my mother yeah. everything. <laughs> As a matter of fact, she reminded me on a show or two ago that when I lost my virginity, 
I came home and I told her and she did not want to hear it, but she realized I didn't have anybody else to talk to and was appreciative that at least I had someone to tell. And she remembers me just sitting on the couch, very giddy. She said, I was high. I said, no, I wasn't high. I just had my first vagina. That's what I was high on was like vagina juice. Are you kidding me? When you said that, you reminded me of one, one of my favorite comedians of all time, Bill Burr. Bill Burr would probably have said to that in some, in some places in the world, your mother would have already known because it was her. Yeah, exactly. And I used to tell her everything, That's and it made terrible. her cringe that she was my go-to instead of, you know, the father-knows-best bullshit story, old school. Well, me neither. What I always say about my dad was, I'm very like my dad. And I actually had a weird experience where I went to meet the mother of a friend of mine who, you know, we'd all known each other from the park hanging out, but we hadn't necessarily all met each other's parents. And I went up to his house once, and his mother answered the door. And I said to her, is, uh, is Greg there? And she stepped backwards and she went, she actually blessed herself. She went, Jesus, Mary, Joseph. She goes, are you anything to Charlie Roberts? And I said, that's my dad. And she went, oh, my God. He took me to a dance when he was your age. And I could swear to God it was him coming back to the door. Wow. And this was, it all had happened to her 20 years before that. And, uh, you know, my dad had been told by other people, you'll never be dead as long as Keith's alive. And it's weird because we don't look exactly alike, but the sound of my voice, and I got his sense of humor, like he, the way my dad was, I would be silent around my dad. I would just watch him. I'd watch how he worked a room. I'd watch how he, uh, how everybody was included. I watched how he, you know, made sure that, that everybody felt the same level of attention and all the rest of it. And I, I was just very quiet around him. So he had absolutely no idea that I was soaking this all up like a sponge. And then I would go out into the world and basically be him. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've noticed my own kid do that. You know, he's, he does have classics. Like he showed up one day wearing one of my t-shirts and uh, I'd only made a few kids t-shirts over the years. And I made this one especially for him and he was wearing, I hadn't seen him wear it in a long time. And I said, ah, oh, Jake, fair play, man. You're wearing my t-shirt. And he looks at me and goes, trying to get the word out, Dad. You, you fucking smart ass. That is the apple falling from the tree, man. At the end of the day, that's what we all do. We have these kids and we hope that they'll uh, do great in the world, but you hope that there might be a little bit of you there. My dad lived on in me and hopefully I'll live on in him. And it's, it, it's fun to know that, but you don't necessarily know who your kid is because your kid might very well be not being himself around you because he is watching you. Right. You know, and that's how I was with my dad. My dad was shocked when somebody told him that because he was like, Keith? He thought maybe my brother Carl was a little bit more animated in front of him and stuff. And they were like, no, Keith, he's exactly like you. Maybe he's not doing it in front of you, but I just saw him work a room uh, at somewhere and it was you. <laughs> I super appreciate that you spent some time with me today, Keith. Uh, it was great oh, to... absolutely. And I, I hope you uh, come back to Ashland and come through and do some more shows and we ha have a chance to hang out and, and have fun together. Absolutely. I think we're looking defo around October because we've got a big festival up in Washington uh, that we're coming up through. So uh, we're talking about, about trying to hit it again because like I said, it was it was a lot of fun and, uh, you know, with, with the kind of people I meet there with yourself and, and Rich and such a great little vibe. I, I, I just think it's 
as I said to Rachel, leave there feeling high in every aspect of the word. I actually would like to be the 100 plus people that uh, travel with you back to Ireland at some point. There's good news because I had, I think I told you this little secret when I saw you, but it's, uh, we were planning on that one being the last one. And the reason was that I, I never advertised it. I'm terrible like that sometimes. You would imagine every night I'd be saying, anybody wants to come to Ireland, you know, it's a big deal. But I just, after a couple of years of doing it, I stopped mentioning it. But the numbers started to fall a little bit. And we were going to Ireland. We were still bringing about 75, 80 people. But I just felt like, let's go out on top. Let's not beat this into the ground. You know, maybe we've, we've used it up. So we announced that it might be the last one. I, said, okay. I didn't say it for sure because it was a typical, you know, truth yet potential marketing strategy, I'll admit. But I was dead serious. And my thought was, if it does average, that'll be it. And we'll go out on top. And it ended up selling out. And it was such a success and so much fun because we've learned how to do it better every year. We're getting better at knowing what they want to do and how the tour will work and all the rest of it and booking better gigs. So I, I literally was, was held against the wall a few times by people saying, you better do this again. This was the best holiday we've ever had. We'd love to do one more. And so I think there's a, there'll at least be one more, but it probably won't be till March. You know, plenty of time to get ready for it. Well, I'm going to bone up on my Irish swearing and all the other things and yeah, maybe get in drinking shape, as it were, between now and then. Thanks for the potential invite. Pleasure to talk to you, Keith. Much love. Hey, brother, you too. We'll see you soon. Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it was super fun talking to Keith. He's quite the character. Love to hear him just speak about many things. If you want to check out Keith and the boys, you can go to youngdubliners.com. That's Y-O-U-N-G-D-U-B-L-I-N-E-R-S.com. Thank you, everybody, so much. Appreciate the listenership. Got a lot of good feedback on last week's show with uh, Kevin Kennerly and uh, Gary Cout. If you want to uh, support Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg, the podcast, please visit Aaronsberg.com. Yep, it's that simple. A-R-I-N-S-B-E-R-G.com. You can uh, check out all the archived shows, anything you may have missed at uh, Aaronsberg.com, or you will find them equally downloadable and listenable at uh, CastBox, at uh, Stitcher, and on iTunes. All right, thanks a bunch. Take care. Where's your mother's uncle? This show is sponsored by Paris Green, a curated collection of incredible objects from around the world. Paris is always a good idea. 77 Oak Street, Ashland, Oregon. Visit them online at Facebook. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44.
Good evening, everybody. You are in for one very special evening with the dubs. I hope you got your dancing going, shoes on. Tim, can I excellent, excellent. get the, the wedge down here? It doesn't seem to be on. Tim on the sound. We didn't do much of a sound check, just a line check. So I'm going to get this puppy down here going, which is my band. And just check the tuning on my bagpipes, and then we're into it. Yeah. Just getting my wedge going here so I can hear myself. Thank you, Tim. Crank that right up. When 
I'm thrilled to be sharing the stage of the Dubs. First shared a stage of them at Keith's wonderful pub that he used to own down in Santa Monica in the early 90s. We were honoured to uh, have Friday nights there, my brothers and I. Fair city. So uh, it's nice to be having him play in my hometown. Yes. Wonderful fellas and uh, incredible music. I'm still amazed that I can still cross paths with them and share stages after all these years. Well, this is a song that I used to do with my two brothers on the streets of LA. Um, very different version. We had a didgeridoo and three bagpipes and a big drum kit, but uh, this is my adaptation of it. See how we go.
teacher, the subject of schoolgirl fantasy. She wants him so badly, knows what she wants to be. Inside him is loving this girl. Lovely Bodley.